Would you take your Bibles and turn to Lamentations chapter 3 with me tonight? Just after Jeremiah, just before Ezekiel. I'm excited to finally come to Lamentations chapter 3. If you've ever heard a sermon from the book of Lamentations, I would venture a guess it was probably only from Lamentations chapter 3. Verses 19 through 24, the last, uh, that's as far as we're going to read tonight. But verses 19 through 24 are the most read and known and preached from verses as they are very important and very hopeful verses. But as we have studied uh, in the first couple of poems, these highly structured and highly stylized poems, uh, we have seen a, a, a bit of a progression. We have seen where not only the author um, and, and narrator in these poems, but the people of God in Jerusalem collectively have been together lamenting their sins and progressively, it seems, becoming more and more aware of God's justice in judging them so, that, that they deserve all that they receive. There, there's been this sort of awareness to that. And, and, and in articulating that, we have seen the depth of the despair and the extent of the devastation uh, of, of what has come upon Jerusalem and God's people. And as we considered this morning, you know, some, somewhat of the argument in Hebrews chapter 2 there, you know, let us remember that if God dealt this way with his people in the Old Testament, who did not even yet have Christ, did not yet have the scriptures, the completed canon of God's word, let us be careful. Let us pay close attention to the message that we've been given and to Christ that has come. Uh, it, will, it will be, uh, it, it, it's Maybe in some ways even worse for us. But um, Lamentations chapter 3, we're going to continue to see some progressions. And in fact, I'm going to structure the message tonight for the first 24 verses around two different sets of progressions that I see and understand in the first 24 verses of this poem. It's a poem of progression. And so we're going to read verses 1 through 24. And then we're going to try to study it together and see and finally learn some some hope from from these verses in the midst of such great suffering and despair. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh God, I thank you for your justice and your holiness and your righteousness, even when it requires uh, punishing my sin and chastening me. God, I thank you that you do so in order to bring me back to yourself and in order to set me aright. And so I, I pray that you would help us to receive that chastening well. To learn from it. To be quick. To be brought to repentance and restoration. But God, now as we turn to this chapter tonight. I pray that you would encourage us. Who are in the midst of various trials and sufferings. That you would encourage us to find hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lamentations chapter 3, just the first 24 verses. Now you'll notice, just by the way, that this is much longer than the first two. So it it espouses, just by way of a reminder, if you've not been with us, 
these poems hold to what's known as an acrostic form, so that every verse begins with a new letter of the alphabet. There are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so verse 1 begins with the first letter, and verse 2 the second letter, verse 3 the third letter, so that there are then 22 verses in chapter 2, 22 verses in chapter 1. Chapter 3 is a triple acrostic. So it's a little bit different, though it is still an acrostic form, where verses in our English, verses 1, 2, and 3, each begin with the first letter. So that there are three lines that begin with the first letter, then three lines that begin with the second letter, and three lines that begin with the third letter. So you end up with 22 letters in the alphabet times three lines per letter in this triple acrostic with 66 verses that you'll find here. So it's a triple acrostic. Um, and so you can just kind of keep that in mind. Uh, as we've seen, that helps, that helps in interpreting it even. It not only adds to the beauty and the artistry of, of the writing and the composition of these poems, but it helps us to see the center, if you will. And even chapter three in its length, by way of this acrostic form, it helps us to see theologically that it's the center of the work. Right? So we don't want to focus on the despair and destruction of 1 and 2, or likewise of chapter 4. It's, it's, it's helping us to see that 1 and 2 build up to 3 as the theological center and the truth of the work, and that chapters 4 and 5 look back on what is learned in chapter 3 and are informed by it. So, so it, the structure, I'm not just telling you that so you'll be impressed with what I have learned and read about Hebrew poetry or even the writer himself and his abilities. But um, it, it does help with interpretation, understanding it rightly. So keep that in mind. Let's read the first 24 verses, and then we'll spend a few minutes studying it together. Beginning of verse 1, uh, I, I am the man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in 
him. You should be astonished by verses 22 through 24. That under the weight of such suffering, he is resolved as he remembers that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Many of us with much lighter tribulations are unable to say that with honesty. Because I think sometimes we wonder whether or not the steadfast love of the Lord has ceased and why we suffer. But notice the suffering of this individual has not tainted his understanding of God. It has not compromised his faith in him at all. And it is shocking when you begin to really, I mean, if if you've read with us chapters 1 and chapter 2 to feel the weight of the devastation that these people have endured, the weight of the suffering that is being endured here by this individual who is personally now experiencing what has come upon Jerusalem, it should blow our minds to hear him recount the faithfulness of God that his mercies are new every morning and that the Lord is his portion. It's astonishing. Now let me, let me give you a, a few more things about the structure of this lament, this poem. Uh, one is you're going to see that there is a progression of tone. Okay, I've told you this one is a poem of progression. So that as these five poems are progressing and leading up to that central uh, idea here in chapter 3, if you remember in, in, in 1 and 2, we've seen that the only first person lamenting that's been done has been done communally by Jerusalem. That the only individual uh, speaking that has actually come into the poems have been third-person sort of narration. So there's been a narrator. I tend to go with the view that... I tend to think that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. I'll tell you, I think chapter 3 supports that as well as any. Um, I'm I'm comfortable with the the disparity of views there. We don't know. It doesn't matter. But I, I tend to think that Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. And I tend to think that he is also the narrator. So that there are not multiple three or four different speakers throughout these poems but that you have Jerusalem sometimes speaking in the first person. You have the narrator or Jeremiah the poet sometimes speaking in the third person. But now the progression, the tone has progressed to a whole nother level in chapter 3. In the third poem, for the first time, now there is an individual first person lament. You see it there, I. I am the man who has seen affliction. Now there's a question of author or a question of speaker here. Uh, there are lots of different views. Um, they range from uh, some scholars think that this is Jerusalem being personified as an individual man, so that they are lamenting corporately through an individual lament, if you will. Uh, they're personified as the man. There are those that see this as another uh, third person altogether, not the author, not the narrator, if those two people are different. Uh, but maybe some other person who was a part of Jerusalem. Everyone's in agreement that whoever it is speaking, whether it's Jerusalem or Jeremiah or someone else, that they obviously have some first-person experience that they were a part of God's people, they identified with God's people, and that they experienced firsthand the tragedies that came upon God's people because of the sin of Jerusalem. Um, but so it, 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 there are views that, that sort of range all over the spectrum. There, there's even the view that it's a generic speaker, so that it's not actually an individual speaker, and it's intended to just represent 
the, the man of many men, so to speak, that, that he just identifies with everyone, and he's sort of speaking individually the plight that they all would have felt. Um, I tend to think that this is Jeremiah. There are, there are details, even in the first few verses here, when he talks about being walled in so that he could not escape. We know from Jeremiah's own writings uh, and, and from, from history that during the siege of Jerusalem that he, would, that he was imprisoned for part of that time, right? So having been walled in. We also know from his prophetic uh, writings and experiences that there was a time when, as he says here, he shuts out, he, he here is God, he shuts out my prayer and has blocked my ways with blocks of stones and has made my paths crooked where God would not hear the intercession of Jeremiah on behalf of the people, not because of Jeremiah's sin and unfitness, but because of the obstinate continued waywardness and sin of the people that he prayed for. So that there came a time in his own prophetic ministry when God said, there's enough. I think some of those things actually help to support that Jeremiah is the author of these poems and that he is the one now personally speaking. The tone seems to be very reminiscent of the language in Jeremiah. It seems to come from the same type of point of view or perspective that we find in Jeremiah's prophetic writings. It seems to recount individual first-person details that would line up with Jeremiah's life. And, And friends, what we know is that Jeremiah was a part of God's people. That he prophesied to them again and again and again, year after year after year, pleading with them to turn lest they experience the heavy hand of God's judgment. Right? So he was personally invested. He cared deeply for Jerusalem. He cared deeply for God and his people. He identified with them and he experienced even literally the tragedies that came upon them. Now, if that is the case, it puts an interesting wrinkle in our understanding and application of Lamentations and particularly chapter 3 because Jeremiah now would be lamenting the personal suffering that he experienced on account of other people's sins. Not that Jeremiah was perfect, but Jeremiah was not responsible for the sins corporately, the, the habitual disobedience of the people of God that ultimately led to their destruction. In fact, he prophesied against it. Nonetheless, he suffered mightily under God's hand, and it was not even on account necessarily of his own sin. That's, help, that's helpful, friends, for us. Because there are, times, there, there are times in the Christian life, even in a corporate or a communal or a national sense, when we undergo tragedies that are not necessarily because of our own sin or fault or unfitness. You know, when Hurricane Katrina hit the coast and Christians all across the Mississippi Gulf Coast, faithful people of God, they suffered mightily. What, what do we do with that? Well, I think Lamentations 3 helps, particularly if we see it in the light that I'm arguing for. Now, I'm, I'm comfortable with, it, with being wrong. I, I, I confess to you that we're not told exactly, but we have to do the best that we can, and I, I think that's the best option here. What we do know for certain, though, is that in the progression of this poetry in this book, that this now first-person uh, individual account of the suffering that this one experienced is a change in tone that is heart-wrenching. Um, this chapter breaks out into f- one, two, three, four, sec- four sections, verses 1 through 24. 
then verses 35 to 39, then verses 40 to 47, and verse 48 to 66. And we'll see the progression that this chapter takes as we move from suffering to hope to prayer to response. As we see that in all of these different sections. Um, but so, so, so it breaks out in kind of a nice, neat uh, structure, if you will. But in the first 24, in this first section, I think we see two things. Number one, we see the progression of suffering in the individual uh, that, that's, that's articulating this here. And then number two, we see a progression through the suffering of this individual's theology. Now, theology is just a word that the, theos, meaning God, ology, meaning the study of God. So in, in his understanding of the nature of God and the person of God and the working of God, who God is and why God does what he does. That's what I mean. We see a progression not only of the suffering that this one endures, he gives us a firsthand account of it, but then at the end of that, as he ends with a hopeful trust in God, we see actually because of the suffering, a progression in his theology or his understanding who God is. That's very helpful for us because it helps us to say, well, maybe in the suffering in our life, even suffering maybe that we do not deserve or that we have not merited, that God is trying to teach us something about himself. Friends, if our suffering grows us in our theological understanding, I would say that it was worth it. It teaches us about God and it helps us to better understand him. So let's consider then first, uh, I've got Five of these, um, and, and, and some of them are intermingled. It's not, it's not all like this verse and then this verse. It doesn't follow a nice, neat pattern. But there is a, a greater structure, I think, that shows the progression of suffering. He begins with a general, in verses 1 through 3, a generalized statement and identification of his suffering. I am the man who has seen affliction. It is under the wrath of God's, uh, the rod of God's wrath. He is the one that's driven me out and has brought me into darkness and has not given any light. It is against me, surely, that he has turned his hand again and again the whole day long. That's a general identification with his, now, as we've seen in the first two poems, his progressed understanding that God is now judging uh, sin. He is the agent of this evil that's come upon us and that he is vindicated in doing so, even though this, I assume that this one here is not necessarily personally responsible for these evils. So he begins with a general sort of statement of identification with the suffering, but then we begin to, he begins to crack the door just a bit and let us in to, to see exactly how he understood the suffering and what the suffering was. First, we see physical suffering. Look at verses 4 and following. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me. That is sort of overtaken my entire being with bitterness and tribulation. Hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. You see, you see there an articulation by and large about his physical estate. He's painting a picture here that because of the suffering that has come, he is now wasting away in his physical body. His flesh and his skin are wasting away. His bones are breaking. I think maybe metaphorically, perhaps even actually. Um, and so we see the physical suffering first, but then the physical suffering, and there's more physical suffering down through these verses that you'll see, but he moves from physical suffering to a circumstantial suffering. Okay. Now he's looking beyond himself to not only am I physically stricken, now my circumstances have so turned into the gutter that I'm suffering because of where I am and what's going on in my life. 
everything is going wrong, so to speak. Look at what he says in verse 7. He has walled me up about so that I cannot escape. I think it's probably imprisonment. He has made my chains heavy, now in bondage. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. So now the circumstances are not only that I'm in bondage, imprisoned, uh, held up, chained down. Now I am also alone. Man, the circumstances of alone. God is not answering. He is not delivering. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones and has made my paths crooked. In other words, I can't progress. I can't get out. He won't answer and I can't fix it. See, the circumstances now are dire. So, So not only is he physically and personally suffering great difficulty, he is now suffering great difficulty because of the circumstances in which God has placed him. He then moves uh, down, you can see, well, let's, he, he continues that sort of circumstantial suffering in his relationship to God. Now, he is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding on account of his judgment. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow that's his, the bow of his wrath and set me as a target for his arrow. That's heavy language. I don't want to be the target for God's arrows, the, 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 the fiery arrows of his wrath, right? But this is the circumstance that he now finds himself in. Beginning of verse 13, I think we see a bit of a progression where he moves from this circumstantial suffering to a public suffering. Now, what I mean by that is the suffering not only of circumstances, but of persecution and of ridicule in the midst of the circumstance and the physical suffering, circumstantial and physical suffering. Look at verse 13. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver, but now look at what he says. So that I have become the laughing stock of all peoples. This tragic reversal. Remember, we've seen that again. All through the first two poems. The object of their taunts All day long, filled with bitterness, he has sated me with wormwood. You see that there. Now he's moved from not only is he physically wasting away, not only is he in dire circumstances where everything is going wrong around him, now, to add insult to injury, so to speak, all of those, all of the public, all of those outside of him and outside of his circumstances, he has become the laughingstock. They now ridicule him. They now look to taunt him all the day and put him down. I mean, it's bad enough to be alone. Now you're less than alone. Now now they're against you, right? Public suffering. Then beginning in verse 16, it heightens even again. We move from public suffering of ridicule and being taunted and isolated to now the, I think, maybe even the result of that is he delves in verses 16 and 17 into a deep emotional suffering. Depression. Friends, Christians struggle with depression. Many of you in this room, we have struggled with depression, right? Look, verse 16, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes so that my soul is bereft of peace. And I have forgotten what happiness is. Wow. Wow. Many of God's people have been there. Many of God's people have been there. You may be there tonight. If you are, there's good news coming. But but I want you to see the progression then of the suffering in this guy's life. Suffering that probably he did not even, quote, deserve. 
I think then finally in verse 18, it progresses beyond even emotional suffering to spiritual despair. Not only is he bereft of peace internally, not only has he forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished. I can't go on. So has my hope from the Lord. Friends, have you ever been so low that you did not even have hope? You thought. Well, at least here I can tell you that this poet can sympathize with you. Perhaps if it's Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the great prophet of God, he knew what it was to experience physical and circumstantial and public suffering that led to emotional and even spiritual despair and distress. Interestingly, though, he doesn't seem to be captive there. Not only do we see a progression of suffering in this guy's life, this progression of suffering seems to lead to a progression of theological truth. The next few verses are pretty astonishing. Look at what happens in verse 19. He changes, he shifts gears here. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Now let's back up. He has currently, theologically, been captivated by the judgment of God. Okay? All the way down through verse 18, he is overwhelmed to the point of spiritual despair with the judgment of God. But it is almost as if when he remembers my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord, that maybe even just the recollection of the judgment of God as being from God himself and that his hope that is now diminished from God himself, his thinking about God through judgment seems to bring to mind something of the consideration of the nature of God more generally. So that he looks back now on previous circumstances and previous life occurrences, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, but I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. What, what? He is called now to move from the judgment of God specifically to think about the nature of God more generally where the holiness of God and the perfection of God and the righteousness of God leads to his vindication and the suffering and the judgment that he has brought. But it does not stop there. He, his mind then goes to the faithfulness of God, to his past experiences in wanderings and sufferings, as God has been with him. And it is there in his reflections on the nature of God, his holiness, his perfection, those things that lead to judgment, but also on his steadfastness and faithfulness that he seems to turn. And it is from the nature of God generally that resulted from the judgment of God being under and aware of the judgment of God specifically. So he moves from the judgment of God, I think, to the nature of God, reflecting on who God is and how God has worked in his life before. Now, to remembering more than just judgment, move to what is perhaps the preeminent 
aspect of God's nature in relation to sinful human beings, the kindness of God. Remember, remember we've seen this coming. Because again and again in the midst of their destruction, they were being ravaged because God saw their sin. Because he was aware, because his eyes were upon them. Yet they cry out communally and individually that God would see them. Why would you want the God that is smoking you because of what he's seen to see you further unless you know him to be more gracious and kind and merciful than he is vindictive? Because they believed, like we saw with David and Samuel, they knew something of the mercy of God, that he is slow to anger and quick to show kindness and mercy. Psalm 86 To go back to what we read at the beginning of the service, the reason that we read that, Psalm 86. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord. For to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Never has a groveling sinner humbled before the holiness of God, repentant of his sins, never has one been turned away. Never. Never. Friends, I think there's something of that recollection coming now to the mind of this poet. He's thinking about the judgment of God that he knows all too well and the suffering that it brings. He then begins to reflect upon God more generally and to think about the nature of God. And in reflecting upon the nature of God, he remembers the faithfulness of God. But not only the faithfulness of God in being with us, but the faithfulness of God to show us kindness. And so look at what he says, beginning in verse 22. The great proclamation Out of nowhere, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. I don't know, I would have thought maybe in prison or when my bones were breaking or my flesh wasting away. When he was waiting like a bear and a lion. When he was bending his bow and shooting his arrows into my kidneys. Perhaps the love of the Lord had ceased. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. When he woke up in prison, the mercy of God was new. When he suffered the ridicule of his peers and the taunting that they hurled at him, the mercies of God were new upon this man that morning. Great is your faithfulness. And so he's led to doxology here. Look at what he says. This is is a trust. This is a declaration of trust. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. He looks around at his circumstance. He looks around at his physical appearance and his body, whatever is left of it. He looks around at the taunters around him. 
He looks within himself at his heart. He looks at his prayer life that seems to be bouncing off the ceiling. In none of those things can he find hope. The Lord is his portion. And he is insistent, committed to finding hope in him. Friends, what a picture this is. What a teaching lesson this is for us. Can you say tonight, in the midst of your difficulty and tragedy, in the midst of your suffering and wherever God has you, that the Lord is all you need. That when you have nowhere to look, you will look to, you will look to God because the Lord is your portion. Can you proclaim that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that his mercies never come to an end, that they are new upon us every morning? Wow. And friends, don't miss that I think it is the progression of suffering that, got, that gets him here. As difficult as that is. What a kindness of God that even in the midst of judgment, even in the midst of tragedy, even in the midst of despair and suffering and depression, that God teaches us about himself. When he leaves us with nothing but himself, when we have nowhere to go but to God, when we have no hope but in the Lord, and he reminds us about his faithfulness, he reminds us about his care, he brings to mind the experiences of our life, the faithfulness that he has shown us. Friends, let this message ring loudly in our minds. I don't know where you are tonight. I know that some of you are enduring great suffering personally, professionally. There is hope in the Lord. There is hope in the Lord. His mercies never stop. They're new every day. His faithfulness is beyond our comprehension. Let us look to the Lord for his steadfast love never ceases. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you for your faithfulness to me that in the midst of my wanderings and in spite of my failings, that you have pursued me and taken me captive by grace. Showered your blessings upon me each day. I pray first of all, God, that we would look to you in the midst of our pain and tragedy, that you would be our portion, that we would come to you, that we would find hope in you, that we would look only to you. But God, I also pray that you would use our suffering to teach us, to grow us in grace and to build us up in Christ. That we would see what you're doing as you reveal yourself to us and you show us who we are. God, I pray that our suffering would not be in vain, but that it would be for your purposes in our lives. That it would be a part of you glorifying yourself through us. And then finally, God, I pray that you would make us to be patient. God, may we suffer well. May we suffer well trusting in the Lord. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.